You're listening to The Healthy Sensitive. Welcome, everybody, to The Healthy Sensitive, a podcast for highly sensitive people and introverts who are trying to figure out how to live their best lives, really kind of dare greatly and get out there in the big, bad world and not lose their sanity in the process if they can help it. Um, I'm Leah Burkhart, um, an HSP, an introvert, uh, writer, blogger, I guess blogger, writer, same thing, podcaster, and uh, health coach to boot. I'm all kinds of things. I'm a smorgasbord. <laughs> anyway, um, today what I want to talk about, or maybe debunk, or play around with, I don't know how to put this exactly. I want to talk about emotions. I'm currently reading a book by Lisa Feldman Barrett called How Emotions Are Made. And I've got to tell you, this woman is an incredibly smart cookie. And when I say she's a smart cookie, what I mean is... A, she was a practicing therapist and then thought, well, gee, this is just so easy. I think what I'll do instead is just go ahead and, you know, become a neuroscientist. So when I say smart cookie, I'm not kidding around. She is revolutionizing the way that we talk about emotions, at least in the field of neuroscience. And I think as a result of her work, you're going to start to see an awful lot of changes in the way that even therapists start talking about how emotions get processed in our brains, in our bodies, etc. Um, and you can imagine why a highly sensitive person like myself would be interested in how emotions are made or uh, how they're processed and why we might have been completely wrong about the way we thought they were processed before. <laughs> anyway, so to start with, really briefly, I do want to re- just do a quick review. To be a highly sensitive person often means you have uh, you know, these four characteristics. This is how you would describe your own experience. So those who have sensory processing sensitivity uh, typically have tremendous depth of processing. They think about things a lot. They they hold back before jumping into things. Uh, They want to make sure that whatever it is they're doing is the right call. And whatever it is they're contemplating, they tend to, to pick at it for a while. Lots of processing going on in that prefrontal cortex. Easily over-aroused. And by over-aroused, I'm not necessarily talking about the good kind. I'm talking about going into a space that just feels like there's a lot of stimulation going on. And the response of our nervous systems being kind of like... (laughs) Because everybody does have that response system in place. It's just, for most people, it takes a bit longer to reach that threshold. So for someone who has sensory processing sensitivity, the threshold can just get crossed a lot faster. Their window is smaller. Their window of optimal stimulation is smaller, I guess is a way of putting it. They're also emotionally, mm, I almost want to say emotionally intense, but there's a lot of emotional processing, uh, emotional depth, I guess would be the best way to put it, with at least those who describe their own experience. And then finally, sensory sensitivity, as in uh, noticing changes in their environment, uh, their immune system might react more frequently to changes, They tend to have more, um, I was going to say sensitivities, but um, allergies. I remember when I had a brain. Those were good times. (laughs) Anyway, lots of anyways today. The one I want to focus on in particular is that emotional intensity or emotional depth that highly sensitive people are reported to have. That's the 
key piece that's been intriguing me as I continue to read through Lisa Barrett's book. And once again, the book is called How Emotions Are Made. This, well, let me start from the beginning. The way we've previously talked about emotions is often in contrast to our rationality. So there's the story that plays out where there's the amygdala, our reptilian brain, and it's all about instant gratification and impulse. I want to take. And that's where the emotions live. And then there's the prefrontal cortex. And that's the more rational Spock-like part of our brain that sort of tames or pulls on the reins of the, that emotional part of ourselves. And so much of what we talk about when we're engaging in behavior change talk or we're talking about how we talk to ourselves we always set it up as though there's our emotions and then there's our logic and the two are warring against each other. And what Lisa Barrett, in essence, debunks is that. She says, no, no, emotions are not something that's separate from our rationality. Emotions are, they live all throughout the brain. And in fact, there is not even any such thing as a universal emotion. There's such a thing as emotional concepts. She starts off by giving an example of a concept. So if you walk into a space and you see these blobs, like it's an art piece, and there's these fuzzy blobs, and you're not quite sure what they are, and then finally someone tells you, oh, the artist meant to depict bees. And then all of a sudden, bam, you look and you go, oh my god, it's totally true. They're bees. They're bees. I see the bees. You no longer cannot see the bees because the concept has been put in place. So now, as far as you're concerned, the picture is a picture of bees. Apparently emotions work very similarly. We have experiences and then those experiences are interpreted by the brain and in that interpretation process we get sensory information from our nervous system and then our brains interpret those that sensory information and we put into concepts. Those concepts are given to us by our culture. Another side note, not even a side note, next piece. Highly sensitive people are often known as people who are good at interpreting the emotions of others. In fact, they're often deemed as being empaths or they're confused as being empathic. That might be true-ish, but evidently that would only really be true if you're talking about two people who are from the same culture. So if me, if I, an HSP, were sitting next to someone who, maybe he was also an HSP, maybe not, doesn't matter, uh, they start frowning, their body kind of caves inward, they're kind of burrowing. My interpretation of that would be that they were sad or disturbed in some way, distraught, certainly. Now, the reason for that would be a few things. Number one, it turns out that in those who have high sensory processing sensitivity, their mirror neurons tend to be, they're more active. So we don't have more mirror neurons, we're that, not that kind of special, but we just, they tend to be more active. Now mirror neurons, just to kind of back up a little bit, let's say that I'm watching someone who's playing soccer. They, in the process of playing soccer, their brains will light up with a specific set of neurons that are all kind of working together. And then I, as I watch him, my brain will light up in very similar pathways to his. And so this evidently is really common with many primates. It's why they call mirror neurons. It's like my brain is trying to simulate 
what the experience would be like if I were in his shoes playing soccer. And this is a lot of researchers think kind of the basis for empathy. That's not to say it's the only way we empathize, but it might be one of them. Okay, so <laughs> go all the way back again. So I'm watching this person in front of me now on the train and they're, they're showing a lot of cues that I would deem to be cues of sadness or, or being distraught. And the reason for that is I'm simulating what that experience would be like if I were, if my body were to start behaving in that same fashion, what would likely be the cause for me? What would probably be that I was sad. Something may have happened to cause sadness. And so then I, in looking at that person ahead of me, am trying to, I'm, I'm gonna label their emotion. Okay, as long as that person is also from the United States, all is well and good. But the problem is, I could be dead wrong. Even within cultures, there doesn't seem to be a universal way for us all to interpret each other's emotions. I might, we, we smile sometimes when we're sad, we cry sometimes when we're happy. So, like, there are pictures that if you were to see them out of context, you'd think the expression was of rage. And then as soon as you blast and you sort of widen the, the visual landscape, you realize, no, it's not rage, it's victory. You know, it's the, it, that expression that looked like rage was in fact someone who was delighted by the fact that they just got a touchdown. Um, you might see a picture and think that the individual was in pain and then you widen it and realize it's an image taken from a pornographic film and she's not in pain. <laughs> so I, I'm talking about this because HSPs have a tendency, bless their little hearts, to get kind of arrogant in this arena where they think they're bad, they're like emotional badass Jedi ninjas or something. It's like, oh, we're so empathic. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe not. And so I, I think there's value in playing around in this area a little bit. A lot of highly sensitive people also maybe complain isn't the right word, but a grievance that I frequently hear from HSPs is, you know, it's like I, I love that I experience tremendous joy, but I, I don't love that I experience tremendous sorrow. The depth of emotions that they experience seems to be wide and deep. And for some reason, they take this to mean that they're more emotionally intelligent. Not all, but many of them think that there's a correlation there. Emotional intelligence is kind of a quirky, funny thing. It's not really clear what that even means, especially if you consider the fact that emotions aren't primal things. They aren't, oh, they aren't built into the system. We make concepts for emotions, and then based on the sensory information we get from our bodies, we try and infer what that emotion is. I'm going to use a word, another wonky word here, interoception. So when I'm trying to figure out what emotion is getting stirred up in my system, I'm engaging it like it, it, that whole process is interoception. Like I'm going internally into my system and trying to figure out what it is that's going on. And I'm trying to read my internal landscape. It's not only with emotions, it's actually primarily used, the term is used most often for like biophysical sensations. But now that I'm talking about biophysical sensations, fun fact, judges, when they're uh, making, reviewing cases uh, for parole, just before lunch, they tend to rule harsher, more harshly, I guess would be better. So they're less likely to let people off you know, let them out on parole right before lunchtime. A lot of them report that they just had a bad feeling about the person. Well, that's fine. 
Maybe the judge was even an HSP. Maybe they're thinking they're super smart and all empathetic and stuff. But the problem is, they might just have been hungry. Maybe not starving, but just hungry enough that it affected their interoceptive processes, <laughs> if you will. So, and then right after lunch, the, the amount, the statistics go right back to where they were before. Isn't that interesting? It's like we can make mistakes not only with, we can make mistakes about our own sensations. Lisa Barrett herself in her book describes an experience where she was asked out on a date and she really wasn't all very into the gentleman who was asking her out, but she thought, you know, you never know. Maybe I'll have a really nice time. You know, it wasn't like she was repelled by the person. So sure, let's, why not? I need to get out of here anyway. I've been in the lab too long. So they go and have lunch or whatever it is that they decide to do, lunch, dinner, they have a meal. And then all of a sudden she says, wow, I noticed that there's these like butterflies in my stomach and I'm noticing my face flush and I'm thinking, whoa, I guess I must really like this person. This is kind of a pleasant surprise. So they finish lunch and he walks her upstairs and she promises that they'll go on another date. She closes the door behind her. She immediately goes into the bathroom and then throws up. To be clear, she did not throw up because she was sick of the person, uh, but it turns out she had the flu. She had a terrible case of the stomach bug. And so those, but in those moments leading up to that, that shift where she, for all of a sudden it became very clear, oh no, I have the flu. She wasn't, she was misinterpreting the information her body was sending to her. Like, it, think, think for yourself. I mean, if you're feeling butterflies in your stomach, the sensation feels very similar to when you see a person that you have a crush on, as it does when you're having to stand up and do some public speaking as it does when you're just about to, when you feel kind of ill and you might have a stomach bug. They all feel very similar, but your brain is trying to figure out exactly what's going on based on context. It's doing some predicting, if anything. It's sort of going back into its previous experiences and trying to discern, okay, when, when's the last time that I felt this way? What context most closely aligns with what's going on now? Ah, this one. I think the last time I felt this way, I had a crush on a boy. So that must be what's going on. But then as soon as I walk into the room and then I realize, oh no, I'm actually sick to my stomach and I throw up, my brain has to recalibrate and go, oh crap, no, that's not actually, the last time I felt like this, <laughs> I had the stomach flu. Very different set of circumstances. And now I'm doing a whole bunch of different things. I'm wrapping myself up in a blanket and I'm Netflix binging. I don't know what Lisa Barrett did. I'm just imagining what I would do. I'm talking about all, why would an HSP go into detail about the neuroscience of emotions. Well, it, I started to play with this myself. There were a few days where I was feeling really low. My energy was low and I felt kind of sad. And so I thought, well, that's really interesting. What if it really, if it's true that I kind of, I'm an active participant in the emotions that I experience. What if I stopped assuming this was sadness? What if I just got curious about it and really started to think about the sensations that were I was experiencing in my body? And the sensations were things like fatigue, um, cold, um, emptiness. So you know what I did? I got myself home, I turned on the heater, I made myself a meal, and then I sat next to my dog. I was fine after that. Now, maybe 
what that means is that I wasn't actually sad. I was just hungry and cold. And once I was warm and had a full belly, I would be happy again. Or maybe I really was sad. Maybe I was really lonely. And maybe it was because I sat next to my pup that that experience of sadness went away. What's interesting is I don't know the answer. And that's kind of cool to think about, especially for us highly sensitive people who have a tendency to get very cocky when it comes to our, our emotional landscape. Everything we know about emotions might just be wrong. What if that emotional depth that we think we have really just boils back down to that sensory like sensitivity? Maybe the reason I think I have such emotional depth is because I just have an acutely sensitive nervous system that's picking up on every nuance inside of my body. Maybe I've just got wicked interoceptive skills, <laughs> in other words. I mean, you don't really know, no one does, but it's worth thinking about, especially given that highly sensitive people tend to have a harder time in relationships, especially, particularly romantic relationships. And I talked about this in, a, in the last few podcast episodes, and, you know, some of the things that they're afraid of, if you will, you know, like they're highly sensitive people have trouble getting involved in romantic relationships in the first place primarily because they're afraid of the commitment that they would have to put forth so because highly sensitive people tend to be very conscientious as a rule they kind of know well if I get involved in a relationship I know myself well enough to know when I commit I really commit so I better really like this person Ugh. <laughs> um Another part of the challenge might be that they are afraid of their own shadow. If I get involved in this relationship, what if I hurt their feelings? I might get angry and I might say something that I don't mean, and then I'll have to take responsibility for that. Ugh, I don't want to do that. What if I get involved and they hurt me? This actually brings me to the next part, and it could probably be its own episode. Based on the articles that I've read with regard to highly sensitive people, they have a tendency to attract a disproportionately large number of narcissists, which is saying something because there aren't that many narcissists out there. I know you might think you've met one, but in all likelihood, if you've met one, you really have only met one because <laughs> evidently it's only 1% of the population. So unless you've met a whole lot of people, mm, you probably just met someone who was obnoxious. Maybe they had narcissistic tendencies, but fun fact, we all do. If you didn't have any amount of narcissism in your system, you wouldn't be able to navigate like at all. You need to have a little bit of ego to be able to say, hi, my name is, and, you know, go out there and negotiate and self-advocate. You know, you can't advocate for yourself if you don't think you have any value. And believing that you have value, well, that's a little bit of narcissism. So to be a narcissist, though, is to have an extremely grand view of yourself, like you, you like these grand visions of, I am amazing, and to see every person as an extension of yourself. So there's no such thing as, like if I'm in a relationship with a narcissist, let's say, whether it's romantic or quote-unquote friend or whatever, they're not going to see me as Leah. They're going to see me as, that's my girlfriend. They're not going to see their daughter as... That's, that's Becky or whatever her daughter's name is. It's That's my daughter. All of the world, every, every aspect of the world is simply an extension of oneself. So evidently, 
even though only about 1% of the population are narcissistic, HSPs attract more of them than the average person. Well, why would that be? You gotta wonder. It turns out each person represents the shadow for the other. HSPs as a rule, um, if you're looking at a spectrum, on one side of the spectrum, you have Jerkosaurus Rex. They are very self-centered. <laughs> they don't think about others very often. And then on the other side of the spectrum, you have doormats, codependents. Neither of these two sides of the spectrum is good. Often codependents try and make the case that they're better because, you know, they're all martyred, martyry and, you know, like, but I'm so sweet. How can you not love me? But you know what? They're just as obnoxious. The other side, though, and each side needs to figure out how to get a, closer to, get a little bit closer to the middle. So <laughs> I went to a, um, God, what do I even call this? It was like a training. I won't name the training because I have so many bad things to say about it and I don't want to do any false or bad advertising rather, but um, the gentleman who was teaching was going on and on about like, oh, this is amazing. It's like looking, you know, making it about the other person. Like it's other person focused, not you focused. And he was saying this to a room full of like social workers and nurses, which in my mind, I'm just like, oh dear God, no, this is not a good idea. Because what he didn't seem to understand, and he was such a, oh, he had the look, he, he was very pretty. He was a very pretty man. <laughs> and I think he had extremely good intentions because everything about him appeared to be authentic. Notice all of the assumptions I'm making, by the way. But all I could think is, I mean, he just seemed like this stuff was revolutionary to him. And all I could think was, you were probably a bro at one point. <laughs> and you were probably the guy who was on that end of the spectrum. Like maybe you were closer to being a Jerkosaurus Rex and then you got exposure to some of his content. You realized, oh my God, thinking about other people. Who knew? It, it makes my work so much easier. <laughs> but he was trying to teach that to a bunch of nurses and social workers and so on. And what I tried to explain to him was, you know, I don't know if this training is necessarily right for this group of people, not because it's not excellent work, but because these folks have the opposite problem. Because in essence, he was trying to get us to take it back to the hospital and to help with like nurses' resiliency. And it's like, no, I don't think nurses need to work more on thinking about other people. Our biggest problem with nurses is that they don't take their lunch because they're constantly worried about their patients. So both ends of the spectrum, not healthy. Both of them need to work to the center. The gentleman who was teaching us was a really great example of a guy who had taken the proper steps to move closer to the center. Those people who are the doormats, though, they could use a little bit more narcissism in their life. They could use a little bit more Jerkosaurus Rex in the way that they navigate the world. Because basically, they need to learn how to self-advocate, put up a boundary, be clear, communicate effectively, you know, be willing to take up space for their own selves. So you can imagine, so you have a highly sensitive person who, I'm not gonna say all highly sensitive people are codependents, because that's false, simply not true. However, they do have a harder time with self-advocacy. They tend to speak more softly, they tend to use communication that's more like, you know, like if it's, if they're too warm, they might be able, they might say things like, you know, do you, does, does it seem warm in here to you? As opposed to, God, I feel really warm in here, would you mind if we turn the heat down? Notice those are two very different things. So you have highly sensitive people on one end of a spectrum, and then you have narcissists. <laughs> narcissists would be on the way, way other end of the spectrum. 
And so narcissists would be thinking, I'm so awesome, I'm so awesome, I'm so awesome. So that is absolutely the shadow of an HSP. An HSP, meanwhile, are doormats, which terrifies a narcissist. So you would think maybe that would mean they wouldn't be attracted to each other. But in fact, it's the opposite. What highly sensitive people are very good at as a rule is making other people feel comfortable. Now, to be fair, some of it is total compassion, empathy, kindness, all good, warm, fuzzy stuff. But a lot of it is, no, 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 you need to be comfortable because if you're uncomfortable, my little mirror neurons are going to go out like haywire and they're going to like mirror what your experience is probably like in my own body and I don't want to feel uncomfortable, so damn it, you better get yourself comfortable. We don't say those things out loud, obviously, but I think that's part of what's happening. It's, it's rooted in our survival, our, our desire to feel comfortable. So the HSP, if they run into a narcissist, is going to be like, you really are amazing. You're so cool. You're so awesome. Now here's the other part of a narcissist that's very interesting. While they may project self-confidence and self-aggrandizement, internally they have very little self-esteem. Almost none. They have no sense of self. And that's part of why they're projecting out. They're sort of overcompensating. Everything is an extension of themselves because at no point did they learn how to love themselves in a true, authentic way. So the highly sensitive person might be picking up onto that in some way. They're sort of looking at like, God, the way you're behaving, it seems like I'm, they're making an inference. You seem like you're in pain. If I were behaving in some of like, cause a lot of the time, once the narcissist like facade cracks, you see the little child that's desperate for sustenance. And by sustenance, I mean emotional sustenance. And so I HSPs, their little hearts start bleeding out going, oh my God, you're in so much pain. Let me help you. And of course the narcissist is like, yes, please give me all the love. I need me some loving. But they don't know how to love themselves. So they absolutely are not going to be able to accept the love from the HSP. And so around and around and around we go. Highly sensitive person giving and giving and giving because they haven't figured out how to say, no, here's my boundary. I don't want to do that anymore. And then the narcissist taking and taking and taking and taking because they haven't figured out, oh, wait, I have the resources to give to myself. And the beat goes on. So why I'm going into all of this, that sort of seems like a really long tangent. And like I said, that could be its very own podcast episode. But I feel like it's a symptom of this like emotional game that we're trying to figure out. And I can say personally that, you know, for a while I noticed my emotions swing back and forth and, and I'm by no means trying to make any assumption that the person I was with was a narcissist. I don't think that necessarily at all. But what I do think is my emotions were swinging like crazy. I can be able, I can say that for myself. And there was a point where I almost felt that the emotional noise stopped and it started to just be, okay, this is now going to be about a goal. The goal is to get out of the situation because if I'm miserable, there's no way I'm going to make him feel better. So we need to dissolve this thing. And that doesn't matter what it takes. And so there you have it. And it turns out that that's sort of how the brain creates concepts. That like, as an example, the brain will link together house, beekeeper suit, fly swatter. Why are all those things in the same category? Well, if there's a bunch of insects trying to come after me, those are all things that might keep me safe. <laughs> so it bridges all of those things together. And it, it, that's how good the brain is at building concepts. 
the brain does something very similar with emotions. You know, the, the fuzzy, weird tummy experiences that you might have, the um, whatever, you, however, whatever symptoms that you can identify as being related to an emotion. Well, that's what the brain does. We are given some concepts by culture, and then once we see that concept, we can't unsee it. Well, that's all well and good, except what if we're wrong? What if I'm just hungry or tired? What if I'm making assumptions? Because as a highly sensitive person, if I really do have sensory processing sensitivity, what if a lot of the things I'm experiencing, I'm just magnifying out of proportion? Yikes. That's kind of a scary thought. And then if I'm using that same flawed system to then project what I imagine other people are feeling, yikes, <laughs> like a whole other problem, like a whole other set of problems could start to ensue. So with what do we do with this information? The best I can say or the best I can see so far is maybe to stop being so dang cocky about our emotional experiences. That's the one. That's the most, that's sort of the primary. Maybe start to just ask yourself questions. As soon as you start to label an emotion, ask yourself, are you sure? Before you start labeling emotions and other people, ask yourself, are you sure? Maybe you're not actually intuiting their emotions. Maybe you're just intuiting what the expression on their face would be exhibiting if you had that expression. Maybe you're just reading your own emotions on someone else's skin. And maybe you tend to do that pretty well and that's all well and good if the people that you're doing it to are in the same culture and have the same experiences and have the same background. That might be extremely dangerous, however, if you're talking about different cultures, different experiences. Malcolm Gladwell, in his book Talking to Strangers, uses this research when he talks about why it is that we keep getting each other so wrong, why we misread people in our own country, in our own cities. Why is it that a white, co a white male cop misreads a young black woman driver when he pulls up to her car? Why does it escalate out of control so quickly? Well, each person is trying to read the other and each person is failing at it miserably. And so then it escalates out of control. That's a scary thought. So maybe it would behoove us, especially us highly sensitive people, to just take a minute and sit back and contemplate, am I sure? We can kind of lean on that depth of processing <laughs> characteristic and don't jump to conclusions and assume that just because we've got such great quote-unquote spidey senses in the emotional arena that we're correct. We might not be. That's kind of a weird thing to contemplate, don't you think? <laughs> okay. So getting curious, not assuming that we're correct. That could be one. The other one, and this one is coming from the book, not How Are You Feeling? Uh, what was it called? Uh, oh God, it's gonna drive me crazy. Permission to Feel, that's what it was. Mark Brackett wrote this book, Permission to Feel. He put together an app. He, he works primarily with, I don't know if you win, I can, a group of people he is passionate about working with uh, as children, particularly in the context of schools. So he put together an app. I can't remember the name of it now that I'm saying this. I'm going to keep looking it up as I'm talking to you. Um, but it's basically, oh, the mood meter app. There you have it. So there's two axes. There's the y-axis and there's the x-axis. On the x-axis, there's 
unpleasant to pleasant. And then on the y-axis, there's uh, low energy to high energy. I think the clinical terms are low arousal and high arousal. And for reasons I think we could all understand, he decided not to use those words for kids and preteens and high schoolers. <laughs> so, and each of the quads, so it break the, what it, the X and Y axis is not like an L shape. It's the full axis. So it looks like a plus sign. And so it breaks it down into four quadrants. The upper right quadrant, he colors yellow. So that's high pleasantness and high arousal or high energy. So that's sort of like joy, excitement, exhilaration. The lower right quadrant is green. So it's like contentment, um, satisfaction, um, a kind of a calm ease. The lower left is low arousal, low pleasantness, or again, low energy, low pleasantness, or unpleasant. And that's blue, so that's like depression, sadness. And then the upper left is high energy, high arousal, if you will, and um, unpleasantness, which is red. So you think anger, frustration. And what he's determined and what Lisa Barrett mirrors in her, huh, mirror again, mirror, mirror, anyway, um, what Lisa Barrett talks about, and really a lot of therapists as well as neuroscientists continue to report to have emotional intelligence really just means that you have what's called emotional granularity the ability to identify an emotion with tremendous specificity so you're not just able to say i'm sad it's i'm melancholy i'm um low i'm apathetic i'm you know, I have ennui. <laughs> um, or if there's contentment, it's maybe it's bliss, it's joy, it's contentment, it's satisfaction, it's satiety. Or maybe it's exhilaration or jubilance or joy or, you know, being able to get increasingly granular about your emotional landscape. Now, this is an area that I do think highly sensitive people could use to their advantage. If you, if we feel things with a lot of intensity and we feel things with a lot of subtlety, we experience a lot of subtle shifts in our body. Because you can imagine if we have sensory sensitivity, we're not just going to have it based on what we're experiencing of, you know, of the world out there, quote unquote. You know, it's like, oh, I'm just seeing the outside world and I'm easily affected by it. That's going to be true, but it's also going to be true with respect to how we in, uh, interpret our internal mechanisms as well. A tummy ache is, might feel a little bit more intense for us than the average person. I'm, by the way, not giving us an excuse to complain more when we're sick. That's not where I'm going. But we just, the intensity might feel more acute because if we have sensory sensitivity, that means it's going to affect our interoception, so how we interpret our internal body, as well as how we interpret the external environment. So the upside to the fact that we have all of this sort of nuance with regard to how we interpret things is that we probably do have more emotional granularity. And that's a neat thing. So the two things we can, the, the downside to being a highly sensitive person, based on some of the new information that's coming out about how our brains do emotions, like the downside is, well, we might experience things really intensely, but that doesn't mean that we're experiencing it or we're labeling it accurately. We might be mistaking, you know, like, we, we really need to be careful not to get cocky with how we interpret our emotions internally. And we have to be even more humble with regard to how we interpret the emotions of others. 
So yes, it might be true that highly sensitive people uh, have a really rich inner life and a rich emotional landscape, but we also might just be hungry. <laughs> we might just have gas. We might not be lonely. We might be cold. We might not be sad. We might just need a snack or a nap. You know, it's like, what is really happening? So the downside is just because we have all of this depth and, you know, intensity doesn't mean we're doing, we're, it might mean, it might lead us astray. The upside though, is that because we have this intensity and this depth of processing, our capacity for really tremendous specificity with regard to how we describe our emotions and our experience can lend itself well to how we communicate with others and how we can encourage others to communicate with us. So it's just something fun to be thinking about and, and I would love to hear your views on this subject. So the first question I have for you is, you know, like what what was your understanding of emotions before you started listening to this podcast? Did you learn, was any of this new or were you like way ahead of the curve and you're listening to me go on and on about this going, oh my God, that was so last season. Um, like, is this new information to you? Uh, the next thing is, you know, have you had any experiences where you misinterpreted someone's emotions? I mean, you were just so sure that you nailed it and they're like, no, that wasn't my experience. And stop looking at me with that level of like, stop magnet, like, Stop holding a magnifying glass up to me. Have you noticed that impact your relationships at all? Um, and then number three, how might shifting your focus from, like how might doing these two things, number one, remaining humble about your emotional landscape and not assuming that you're correct, either about your own emotions or others, how might that improve your relationships? And also how might it improve your relationships to simply get curious about developing a more robust language for your emotions. So some fun things to be thinking about. Uh, and of course, you can always just write to me with any thoughts that you had about the podcast. You can reach me at Leah, that's L-E-A-H, at thehealthysensitive.com. That's my email. And you can just hit me up directly from my website. It's not very interesting. It's very similar. It's www.thehealthysensitive.com. Uh, and yeah, so if you have any questions, comments, thoughts, uh, suggestions, anything at all, always love to hear from you. And uh, if I don't, I just look forward to, you know, meeting up with you again next week. Take good care and bye-bye.